Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Today's guest lives at the intersection of the creative process, the future of work, and self-management. Jocelyn K. Gly is a creative polymath who's held numerous editorial positions, written a book on email, and now launched a podcast urging people to slow down. Jocelyn and I have a discussion that's both tactical and theoretical. Tactically, we chat about why Inbox Zero is so damaging and the psychology behind news consumption. Theoretically, we riff on whether time is subjective and how some of the best things in life are imperfect and thus cannot be optimized. In this episode, we talk a lot about digital overload. It's pretty intense for me as a solo entrepreneur, podcaster, and writer, not to mention parent of two young kids. But here's a dirty little secret. Do you know how much time I spend on email each day? 28 minutes. Yep, you heard that right. 28 minutes. This number plunged from 90 minutes once I completed Tiago Forte's class, Building a Second Brain. This five-week class taught me how to manage ideas, notes, communications into one comprehensive knowledge management system. Building a Second Brain is a five-week class that starts on November 6th. You can level up your workflow while supporting our podcast by visiting bit.ly slash radbrain. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash radbrain in all lowercase. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. Today's guest is Jocelyn K. Gly. How are you? Great. I am excited because I've been a fan for a long time, and now we have an excuse to talk about fun things like email and productivity. (laughs) But let's dive in. What did you major in? I was actually in this sort of unique honors program at Boston University in college that no longer exists. It only had about 20 people a year and you could design your own major. And so I did French and American literature and film. I actually kind of snuck into the MFA screenwriting program there while I was an undergraduate. So that was kind of the, that was the film piece. And you graduated. Did you go on to use all those skills in those degrees? I mean, certainly, you know, I think what you learn in a liberal arts degree, right, is critical thinking and writing, and certainly I use those skills every day. I, in fact, actually still write screenplays, and I've written screenplays ever since. They're sort of primarily sitting in a desk drawer up until today, but there's still some, there's still some future plans for them. So we'll, we'll see. (laughs) So you've been involved in the internet through its various iterations. I'd love just to give a little context to our listeners, kind of the 90-second career arc that you've been on. Yeah, well, so right after college, I actually ended up working, you know, sort of friend of a friend at a small web design firm. It was actually called an interactive firm. Like, that's how long ago it was. And that was actually in this old mill outside of Boston that was kind of the center of the sort of dot-com boom and then the dot-bomb. It was like Monster.com was based there, and there were kind of all these sort of early e-commerce, you know, sort of a little too ahead of their time type of companies there. Anyway, I was kind of a Jane of all trades there, so I just sort of learned about building websites and project management and all those sorts of things. And then I got laid off, and that was the dot bomb. And then I was still in Boston at that time. I ended up moving to New York. 
a friend, actually my old boss, told me about this company, Flavor Pill, which still exists. And at the time, it was kind of one of the first sort of really popular cultural email newsletters. And they you know, did this sort of curated listings in a variety of cities all over the U.S. Before everyone had email newsletters. Yeah, before newsletters. everyone had an email newsletter. And it was kind of that daily candy period, yeah. right? So I ended, And it was a startup, but people weren't really talking about startups then. And I kind of ended up being their first full-time employee. And I worked there for about five years. We built out a number of other email properties, you know, one that reviewed books, one that reviewed electronic music, fashion, et cetera. I think it was about maybe like 30 or 40 people when I left about five years from then. And then I kind of, I ended up sort of taking a job that was a little bit of a mistake in LA. I should actually backtrack, but at Flavor Pill, what I learned was, you know, I learned a lot about email newsletters. I learned a lot about online content. I learned a lot about branding and developing products. And then I took this job that was kind of a left turn, sort of offered more money than I had ever made. And someone was like, I want you to reinvent this, you know, online music website. And it kind of turned out to be sort of a false promise. So I only stayed there about 10 months, kind of retooled and came back to New York. And then, you know, was doing some sort of freelance stuff. And then I ended up meeting Scott Belsky, who was founder of Behance, you know, just huge online network for creatives to showcase their work and get hired. And a friend, I was just interviewing him for a friend's publication, but really clicked and stayed in touch. And a couple months later, we met up, and Scott had just landed the book deal for Making Ideas Happen, which is a very successful book of his. It came out in 2009. I ended up helping him with research for the book, kind of first-line editor, because he was also running a startup and kind of you know needed some help to sort of make sure he was staying on track and pushing the project forward. And then we really clicked, and then Behance launched the first 90... 9U conference. It was actually called the 99% conference at that time, which was based on this idea of really focusing on idea execution rather than idea generation and targeting a creative audience. And that concept really took off. And so we decided to kind of spin 99U into a larger brand, this editorial property. And then I was there for about six years or so until I kind of went out on my own a couple of years ago. And you've always been kind of in the world of creatives just based on the story you just told and a lot of your own writing. When did the interest in kind of, and I don't want to just like bastardize it with the word productivity because it's just like, it has such a negative connotation, this word, but I guess kind of how we work is a passion of yours. When did that percolate into your work? Well, it it was very much at, you know, when I was at 99U. So, you know, the name of that for people who don't know comes from this Thomas Edison quotation, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So we, the whole mission of the entire brand was kind of like, demystifying the creative process, right? And sort of, you know, and and during the process for the editorial side, I've probably interviewed, you know, hundreds of designers and entrepreneurs at this point. And of course, also we did a conference and so curated a lot of talks around that, you know, and also followed tons of research around it. And I wouldn't say it was something that I you know, started out with a passion for. I think that's kind of a false notion. I'm a little more on the sort of Cal Newport side of that meaning emerges from mastery. So I think the more that I got into this topic of, you know, how does the creative process unfold? How do people really push great ideas forward? How do they get stuff done? Kind of more than productivity, but just how do people build amazing businesses? Like how do they make incredible art? Like what goes into that? I kind of started to become passionate about it as I learned more about it. But I think the other thing that happened, what I realized while I was interviewing all of these different, you know, kind of creative types and entrepreneurs was that there was a huge shift going on in the workplace, you know, many, many, many shifts that 
added up to essentially a lot more self-management for everyone, right? The sort of flattening of the workplace hierarchy. So we have less managers, or maybe you're working with multiple managers. The idea that you don't just have one job, you're juggling a lot of different projects. And then, of course, you know, the sort of shift to a lot of people just working for themselves or working remotely. And so more and more and more, we all just have to be really good at managing our time. And it kind of just happened in this sort of subtle way. So I don't think, you know, I think... Most people aren't even conscious that that was like a big change, you know, but that's, I mean, being able to manage yourself, being really organized is incredibly challenging. And so I think there's just much more of a need for that than, you know, there was, say, even 10 years ago. What's the biggest myth about the creative process? I think the biggest myth is that it's easy for some people and you know, more difficult for other people. You know, I think I love to look at people who you think are an overnight success and then kind of go dig into their bio and see what happens. You know, I can remember going to see Miranda July's movie, Me and You and Everyone We Know, which of course now came out, you know, many, many years ago and being like, who's like, who's this woman? You know, like, where did she come from? And like, why is she so successful all of a sudden? And then I looked into her bio and it was like, oh, she's been doing performance art for like 20 years, you know? And so that's at 99U, you really, I mean, it really did kind of reveal that sort of 99% perspiration aspect to me. I mean, it's just a lot of, I think it's a lot of persistence for everyone. And in, in your travels and research, a lot of the list, a lot of our listeners are more corporate kind of consultants and finance. There, there's a bunch of tech people I know being on that side of the table, I was always lamenting. I'm like, I'm not creative. I just sit here and do Excel spreadsheets all day. And I kind of like look at the kind of indie rocker in Brooklyn. And it's like, I want to be like that person. But what, like, where does one, if you are in a more repetitive kind of nine to five-ish job, what are ways to cultivate one's creativity? Well, like many people, I do fall into that term using, you know, creatives or creative professional or whatnot. But I really don't think that like, you know, creativity is like limited to some certain type of person. You know, I think that, you know, I do a lot of interviews myself and I ask people sort of a series of kind of five questions at the end. And one of the questions that I always ask them is how would you define creativity in 10 words or less? And everyone gives a completely different definition and they're all right, which is what's so amazing about it. Someone I just interviewed, this open water marathon swimmer, Kim Chambers, said it's self-expression. And, you know, someone else said, you know, it's taking what's in front of everybody else and, you know, turning it into something new. And someone else said it was really shining a light on something and pay att- paying attention to something that nobody else pays attention to. So I think it, it comes up in all of these different ways. Like even, you know, and let's say you're in a more corporate role, like to me, even, you know, you have to say whatever, create some type of presentation that you're giving work or that you're giving to a larger audience. Like that is an incredibly creative act, kind of figuring out the arc of a story and figuring out how you're going to change someone's mind about something. So, I mean, I feel like it kind of is baked into everything i think that just sometimes we kind of hold up certain types of people you know writers painters as more creative than others yeah looking back at my own career one of the things one of the areas that i was most creative in was how i would manage other people and so there's a creativity of relationship building right which is not the kind of hemingway profile of creativity it's more like the reed hoffman profile of creativity but 
Reed Hoffman is a very creative individual. So, well, and I think, you know, I guess to answer your question another way, like, I think that one of the things that's really preventing all of us from being creative is just that we're too overscheduled and we're moving too quickly. So, I think for all of us, you know, kind of creating little more pockets of time when we disconnect or you just have a little kind of what I call like white space, kind of the space. You know, designers use the term white space a lot, and that's sort of the negative space in a design that throws what you want someone to pay attention to into relief. And similarly, in, say, our daily schedule, you know, having this kind of little pockets where you're not doing anything or you're letting your mind wander allows you to then kind of pay attention to the things that really matter more and notice them more. So I feel like that it's more like the creativity just needs that space to start, you know, percolating up and we just don't give it that space and we're like back-to-back meetings rushing 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 yeah. all the time so here's a here's a question for you what's your relationship with time that's kind of a complicated question <laughs> well it's something that i think about a lot as you know i recently launched a podcast it's called hurry slowly and so obviously the sort of idea of time is baked into that and it's very much about sort of figuring out how to navigate life and work at a more sustainable pace And I've, in fact, been holding that. So it's based on this Latin expression, festina lente, which means make haste slowly. And Sorry, say that again? Make haste slowly. So it's sort of like a hurry slowly is like an updated version. That sounds a little cooler. But I've been obsessed with that. I actually wrote my college thesis on this Milan Kundera book called Slowness which is about the speed of modernity as composed, you know, as compared to, you know, sort of the speed that people moved like 200 years ago. And like, what does that mean? And how does that change our feelings about it? So I don't know, to me, I guess, when I think about time, it feels like it's something that's accelerating almost out of our control, because I think that the technologies that we use now really privilege speed. And it's almost like we're inheriting this set of digital values that we're making kind of our values but in many ways they're sort of incongruous with sort of human values or the things that actually make us feel good or the things that actually help us focus or the things that actually help us be creative so I think there's kind of a really interesting tension there. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being really rushed and 1 being like yoga state of mind what is kind of your inner time ranking man good question well these days it's it's pretty good like these days i would say i'm probably like a four like four or five but i just moved back to new york and when i left new york i was really burnt out and you know when i left new york i was probably like an eight or a nine. If ten, so ten is the worst ten in this scenario. Worst, yeah. <laughs> you, you always rush. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it took you know a lot of thought and a lot of personal work to to get that number down. <laughs> do, you, do you think that time is objective or subjective? It's completely subjective. You know, I'm sure you've seen some of those. I mean, there's all different types of research, right? Like if you, you know, you travel to a new city, right, or you just go on vacation for a week, and it feels like time slows down right because you or you notice things in a way that you never would because they're unfamiliar you know where there's been other like weird studies where people like lived in a cave for like a month and you know didn't have access to light and how that changed their perception of time so I think it's completely subjective but there are many 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 things that are impinging on our subjective reality which you know often I think make us feel like we need to go faster or do more Etc. Etc. I'm so happy you said that because most 
most of our listeners, I've, I've had many, not arguments, because I probably would be more on the objective, but switching, like gradually moving to the subjective. But people are like, an hour is an hour. It's like clock time. And actually, uh, one of our other guests, you, you, if you haven't seen his work, you, you would really enjoy it. His name is Andrew Taggart. And he talks about clock time. And I don't know what the opposite of clock time is, but let's say it's non-clock time. And he has a coaching practice where he dissolves the, the quality of, of clock time. And so it's, I, I said, are your clients terrified to like not know what they can schedule next? But, but it's such a, it's just like a simple thing. And it's like, oh, wow. And I can only imagine, I, I've, I haven't worked with them, but I can only imagine how your perception of time changes when you know that there's no end point in the conversation that you're meant to be having. Yeah, and I've had a lot of, a number of conversations with people recently, one with Oliver Berkman, who is a really thoughtful writer for The Guardian. He actually is writing a book on time right now. And then Jason Fried is the co-founder of Basecamp, who I interviewed for the, the first episode of the podcast. And both of them use this metaphor of technology creating this sensation of sort of time being on like a conveyor belt, you know, and this sense that it's, right, it's passing you by and like you have to use it or not use it or you kind of, you know, and then you kind of lose it. You're, yeah. miss, you're missing out. And when Jason used it, he was literally talking about Slack, right? And when you're in a Slack chat window and the conversation is going down, it's going by and people are chatting and so you have to feel like you have to kind of get your word in edgewise. But I think that, you know, that idea of this sort of conveyor belt and even just the idea that you can optimize your time or that you should be optimizing your time is completely new and suggests perhaps a sense of control that, you know, we maybe don't really have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because in, in this notion of time and notifications and Slack and all that, isn't it just a deeper manifestation of other psychological questions? Like what? Well, I guess ambition, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you are only viewing the world on clock time, does it say something about, and time is viewed as a resource, right? Is it a resource for the creation of something, right? And so I would guess, so, so one would be ambition, one would be control, one would be different kinds of fears, and I've been really, I take this, I'm going to take a little sidebar, but I've been really moved by a book called Difficult Conversations. And basically a difficult conversation has three elements. There's the what happened, the facts, there's the feelings, what does it bring out of both people? And then the third part, which was like the, the like kick in the balls for me was like, it's identity. So that's a difficult conversation. Now think about everything that we've just discussed about time, it's email and Slack and all that. Those are conversations. They might not be difficult, but in that conversation is an element of fact, an element of feeling, and an element of, of identity. And so it's kind of like really, maybe to, maybe to put it in a more specific example, I gave a talk today, a little productivity work hack talk, and people will always push back on me. So I have these rules, like my email only comes three times a day. I spend 28 minutes a day on my email, like in the past kind of five weeks. People look at me, they're like, you're fucking nuts. Like, that's, that's not true, you're lying. They're like, and then it's like, oh, you work for yourself. And then like, that means I'd have more email, not less email. Or you're, you are a senior, you're a senior person, I'm the junior guy. And 
what I reflected to them is, have you ever asked the people that you email or Slack with, what is the expectation of your communication? Like, I can't ask that. It's like, why not? And that's where I think there's this kind of lack of communication around communication that you just assume. And I think your animal instincts assume like fight or flight or I suck at this or I'm not good enough. My boss thinks I'm... Mm -hmm. uh, Anyway, that was a little bit of verbal diarrhea, but I'm sure you can react. Well, I mean, you bring up the question of identity. I think that there's this, the situation that you describe creates an incredibly huge pressure on anyone and everyone to sort of maintain their identity. So what I mean by that is just the volume of chatter, right? The volume of requests, the volume of email, the volume of social media notifications that are incoming to us every day. It demands such a conviction of identity, such a conviction over the way that you think you should structure your day in order to like fend that off and be able to do the things that you want to do and you don't even really I mean unless you just say like I'm never gonna I'm not even gonna have email which is like I don't how do you do that right it's not even a choice you get to make you you know you just it's just happening like it's just sort of happening to all of us and so I think that and that kind of goes back to that sort of challenge of self-management that I was talking about like this expectation of response and this sort of sense of entitlement to your time is incredibly challenging and Again, I think it's one of those things that we just sort of deal with without being really conscious of it. You know, you think about even like I, I like to use the meta the metaphor of sort of physical va- physical mail as you think about digital mail, right? And you know, you just think about okay, I used to get letters and I used to have a mailbox, and right, that mailbox had like certain physical limitations, like you could only put so much mail in it, and then it would like fall out, <laughs> you know, or you couldn't put anything else inside of it. But like an inbox is infinite. It can, you know, there's never an inbox bears no relationship to the actual amount of time or energy that you have to deal with the things that come into that inbox. You can't be like, hey, you know what? I, and this would be a great feature. I have three hours a week for email. So like, please only let the appropriate emails into my inbox that will take up that much time and no more. You know, it's infinite. And, but you know, we only have so many hours in the day and we only have so much bandwidth to devote to these things. And that just creates many, 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 many challenges and many decisions that we didn't used to have to make that we now have to make. It's quite challenging. In your research and your writing, how do you recommend that people take back control? And, and maybe to put some parameters in it, let's say if you if you are working in a more structured environment, because mm-hmm. the, the yeah. question I always get about like deep work, you brought oh, you brought up Cal Newport, but deep work, like great, but my boss sends me emails every three minutes. Yeah. I can't like go for a four hour deep work session. Only you can because you're, you know, so yeah. entrepreneur. Totally. Well, I think there's two points for that. One is for like kind of overall processing. I like to think about the Pareto principle, right? This sort of 80-20 rule, this idea that, you know, 20% of your inputs are going to create 80% of your out of, of your outcomes and thinking about that kind of applied to email sort of almost in a reverse way this idea that you know probably only 20% of the emails that you receive or less are going to provide like most of the benefit right so if you were processing your email just kind of thinking about that concept right you have 100 emails okay probably only 20 of these or less are actually that important and even as you go through and process it in chunks kind of like saying okay well like 
if I only have time to process like one fifth of these, like what's the most important, you know, and you could even change the ratio to sort of whatever you wanted. But this idea of understanding that like there always is some element of triage and like, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice some opportunities in order to focus on the priorities that are important to you. And then, I mean, I think the second piece, just literally, as you say, for, you know, oh, I want to go offline or I don't want to check my email for a few hours is if you have an iPhone or use something else, figuring out how to use like literally VIP notifications. Like how can I make those people who I can't ignore, you know, identifying them and marking them. So those emails do bubble up to me and then I can feel like at peace with ignoring everything else. Because again, like same thing with that Pareto principle idea, you know, maybe you get emails from a hundred people, maybe you get emails from 200 people, but probably only about like a handful of those people, maybe five people like ever need to be responded to urgently. You know, I think frequently we sort of pretend that emails are urgent as a form of, you know, procrastination or just making ourselves feel valuable by being busy. What's your take on inbox zero? My take on Inbox Zero is that it's a damaging perspective at this point. That term, as you probably know, was coined by Merlin Mann. And he, in fact, coined that term, I believe, in March of 2007. And even when he coined the term, he still wasn't like... It, it was It was still like very complicated. It wasn't like he was just like, you should have zero you know, emails all the time. There's something like much more subtle going on in what he was recommending. But nevertheless, what happened a couple months after that in June of 2007 was that the iPhone was introduced for the first time. So even when that concept arose for the first time, it existed in a world in which our email did not follow us around unless you had a BlackBerry. And it existed in a world in which everyone didn't have a smartphone, you know? So of course, when everyone has a smartphone, then many, many more people have emailed their fingertips and can, will email you. So the email volume has continued to go up and up and up. So I feel like that's right. That's almost a 10 year old concept right now. And I think it's just like completely not relevant for most of us. It's almost more applicable to snail mail, right? Than to (laughs) to mobile email. So what's your average, if we open your inbox today, how many messages? How many messages do we have? Oh my gosh. Well, I have two inboxes right now. There's probably like I don't know, maybe there's like 20 or 40 emails that I need to deal with, right? Because I don't work at a large company anymore, my volume of email has gone down. But I already see like this this sort of new project that I'm doing the podcast is like starting to do well. I already see it's like, oh, a little more emails coming in, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think as, uh, you know, frequently your email increases as relative to your authority, as relative to your success, right? So it's kind of an ongoing process. But one thing I find just super valuable is I I literally have this folder that's just called to read and just for things I just only need to read I don't need to respond to them and so I'm constantly just like dragging things out of my inbox just like okay and then you know later when I have time to just read things then I'll go look in that but this kind of triage sorting I find like extremely relaxing and extremely effective for just clearing out some of that clutter as it comes in you know and I mean literally that's like 50% of the emails that I get at least are just like oh I only need to read that later and I'll just put it in there and then now it's gone yeah. For me with Inbox Zero, I was a big time Inbox Zero guy. And then I stopped because of the guilt. Like basically the relative guilt between Inbox Zero and Inbox Five, it just felt like so the punishment didn't fit the crime. Because <laughs> uh, like five emails and zero emails, it's the same. It's effectively. It's there's like, more. It's there's more. Minute. Yeah, there's more coming. <laughs> but now I've actually, I do strive for it, but I very, I time track on email. And again, I think, 
you know, everything that you've said so far is around adding an element of intentionality. It's like the, the actual time doesn't really matter that what it shows, but the fact that I have to punch in to check email or the same way that I have a really long iPhone password with no touch ID, like there's a, there's an actual barrier to do something mm-hmm. makes me just, they're all just kind of self-awareness triggers. So Moving away from email to another thing that's really addictive, overstimulating, and nonstop, the news. How does one deal with the news flow, either in your personal life or, you know, I I have read a lot of articles. It's like, stop reading the news. And it's like, I don't think I can stop reading the news, but I probably don't need to read that 13th story about Jeff Sessions. So what's your relationship with the news? I mean, I'm someone who can, I I definitely am like, I can kind of turn it off. Like I'm not a news, I'm not a news junkie, but it is a question that I've been thinking about a lot. And, you know, on this, on the podcast that I'm working on, Hurry Slowly, I, they haven't come out yet, but I've done a couple of interviews already around this particular issue. And I guess a couple of things, takeaways from those interviews. One, I, I actually interviewed this woman who researches, you know, the sort of impact of news and media consumption on people and the stress that it creates and so forth. And one of the things that she was saying to me that was so fascinating was, you know, just talking about, and this starts even way back to like sort of the 24 hour TV news cycle, you know, that started in the nineties. But this idea that the way that the news is sort of fed out to us, right, is it's constantly sort of trying to activate our sort of threat instincts, right? You know, so they always presented in sort of the, the most catastrophic possible way. And then what happens is, though, you never get the the f- you never get a finish to the story. You always just get the sort of like threat alert, you know. But you never get like you never learn like, well, was that resolved? Like, did that turn out okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And so you you never get that kind of sense of of closure. And she was sort of talking about like, okay, let's cast our minds back to you know a hundred years ago, talking about some of her relatives and you know living in a small town in Maine. And, you know, let's say whatever, someone's barn catches on fire. It's a catastrophic event. But what happens is the community comes together and they help them rebuild the barn. And everyone sees both the catastrophe and then they see how the catastrophe is resolved. And in fact, they help resolve the catastrophe. And the kind of takeaway from that was is that, you know, if you're just sort of scanning the headlines and you're just looking at that all the time, you're in this kind of constant obviously stress mode, but also this sort of like open-ended, like nothing's ever resolved mode. And so to deal with that, one of the sort of more effective things that you can do is actually just really take it down to a local level and, you know, think about, okay, well, what's an issue that I care about and how can I address that on a local level? So in some way you get to sort of give yourself almost some closure and give yourself a little forward movement and kind of like close the loop on that story sometimes because that is you know just sort of incredibly <laughs> comforting and gratifying and kind of counteracts mm-hmm. some of that. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing because you, you just get this feeling right like oh there's so many problems I want to take action but like what can I do? It's it's national, it's international. It feels so but just doing something on a local level can really kind of relieve some of that. And when you say local you mean local news not like local versus I mean local like I don't know say you care about animals you know like work at a local pet shelter or like you care about climate change okay like don't drive your car one day a week like actually do something at sort of a very local level you know call 311 about some like trash that's on your block or something that's annoying you and like have them clean it up like just do you know think about like how you can take out some of that 
frustration and not being able to change things on a local level. But yeah, and then I think the other thing is, to me, is like really thinking about, you know, sort of a slow media diet as opposed to getting all your news from social media or getting all your news from the internet. I definitely kind of shifted to, you know, okay, I'm going to subscribe to more monthlies and weekly magazines and start to take in the news in a way and at a pace where there's a little bit more perspective to it. So again, you can start to like, okay, like how is this playing out and like what's the context and does it really matter? Should I be freaking out about it? Should maybe I not? So I think again, kind of taking some of it offline and, you know, just reading an analog object like a magazine or, you know, something that comes out at sort of a, a longer pace so that you actually get some perspective on the issues and it's not just this constant kind of like catastrophic freak out pace. What I found, at least for myself, especially post-election, was that in there's this weird sensation that the more you read, the more you can contribute to solving the problem, whatever. It's like you're taking action. And I actually disabled my Facebook feed on November 9th, and I haven't like gone back since. But I can imagine that I've seen that in my peer group, that it's like the more I read, the more informed I am, the more informed I am, the more I can fight this. But, but then again, when you think at the local level, I, I get an example. I called a bunch of friends. It's like, let's go canvassing for a local candidate. And, you know, people who were pretty, pretty damn outraged, it, it might just be like me and one other person. I guess that that's an example of the local action, right, for a state assembly. Absolutely. Race. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, yeah, and I was, I did an interview, one of the interviews I did was with Ann Friedman, who mm-hmm. runs the Call Your Girlfriend podcast, is also a really great writer, has her a weekly newsletter that's quite wonderful. I was talking to her about her kind of media diet and you know, I was asking her, like, yeah, I feel like sometimes people are, you know, just retweeting things or something, and it kind of feels like they're, like, taking action. You know, and she made the point that, and I think this is probably true, like, if that's your form of taking action, like, probably you're not going to take action. You weren't the type of person who was going to take action anyways, you know? And she was kind of also, like, you know, it's not like I get to the end of my day and I'm like, you know, oh, I I tweeted that. Like, that was an accomplishment, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And when you cast it in that, if you kind of reframe it that way, you know, like, what did I accomplish today? You know, like, "Mm," like, retweeted that petition from, you know, Kamala Harris. Like, well, that's not really doing anything. (laughs) But I think, I guess, almost like you could recast it in the the framework of risk-taking or something like that. I think that, you know, retweeting things or signing petitions, right? It's an incredibly passive and sort of low risk way to do deal with the problem, you know, as opposed to even, right, of course, the interpersonal interaction of calling your congressperson feels a little uncomfortable to some people, you know, so if you want to push yourself to do that, maybe just reframing it as like, this is actually a form of risk taking for me might perhaps motivate you to do it. One thing about this type of writing around work and productivity, you're one of the few female voices in it, at least that, that I've found for, let's just take medium.com, which is not the proxy for, you know, a, a lot of the, most of the books that come to mind, most of the podcasters, definitely the medium stuff, the voices even, I, they, they seem to be more male. Is there a gendered lens to a lot of this kind of productivity you know, it's funny. I actually, I mean, I do think about gender a lot, but I hadn't thought about it like specifically within that space. But it's, of course, it's not surprising, right? I mean, I think so much of that space and, and particularly like anything that gets posted on medium.com ever, right, is like someone who's like 
like, I did this thing. Like, let me now tell you how to do this thing, you know? And I think in general, you know, of course, white males are more likely to be able to whatever, succeed and do whatever thing <laughs> it is. And so you get more of those voices. Asian males are not that, <laughs> straight Asian males are not that far behind. But I also think that, I don't know, maybe I think there's, especially like, right, medium itself, of course, tends to be very much like, I think more the entrepreneurial set in terms of who's drawn to it, a little bit the creative professional set. And I think that's very much a group of people who like to think about optimizing things and like to think about getting the most out of things. And so that just feels like very much like sort of that, what the way that that kind of group of people thinks about things. And I like, for me, the word, like just thinking about the word opt, like I hate that word optimize because it sort of suggests that, you know, everything could be made more efficient and everything should be made more efficient. There was a there was a meme that was going around Twitter a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you saw it was when someone announced like they were gonna try and, you know, reinvent bodegas. The bodega. Yeah, Yeah. the bodega thing, right? And like turn it into you know, so you wouldn't have to go to your corner bodega anymore, it would come to you, et cetera, right? And sort of everyone was on Twitter was kinda like there was this big reaction, like, nobody wants this. Like I like going to my bodega. But one I can't there was some response from some guy and he kinda quoted this thing. And it was just sort of talking about like all the things that matter the most to us. You know, it could be like your favorite jacket, you know, that you got, whatever, from your grandfather that's like worn in a certain way or, you know, the relationship that you have in your marriage. You know, these things are like worn and they're imperfect and they're completely unable to be optimized, you know, sort of in many ways, all the best things in life can't be optimized. So I do think to me I think more about sort of self-management than productivity because I prefer that lens because I don't like the idea that everything should be optimized. Yeah. No, and maybe it's it's almost the wrong construct, right, of squeezing squeezing water out of a stone. And I, I mean, look, not I'm not the person that's going to kind of abstract this up to capitalism or or, you know, the sins of Wall Street, but there is there is this element that it's like kind of win win at every cost and kind of everything else is secondary like in that and 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 that's like the real kind of tense relationship that i have with productivity or self-management where my wife lisa's number one complaint is you do not you cannot do nothing and it it like it's it's not it's beyond just like a petty complaint but it's a significant source of of tension in our marriage because you know she's I'm sitting on the couch and she's like don't you want to just like stare into you the eyes of your 3 month old beautiful little girl and i was like yes i do love my little girl but like can i like pop in a podcast like even <laughs> even when i was even when i was doing research for this you get it cuz i listened to some of your old podcasts and most of them I listened to between the hours of 2 to 4 a.m. when I was rocking my three-month-old back to sleep. And there's a part of me that's, I wouldn't say proud, but it's like I, I'm proud of that I can do a lot, which is that identity question again. Yeah. Then there's other part of me that's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> uh, like, can't you just sit in the dark at two in the morning and not listen to the pod- to a podcast? And that, that tension is really kind of at the root of a lot of my anxiety and not knowing how to navigate that. Do you feel that? 
I certainly feel that. And it actually brings to mind two two books, both by people that I've recently interviewed. One of them is called The Tyranny of Choice, which is by the Slovenian philosopher Renata Seletzel. And I won't recap her entire argument here, but she does actually talk about capitalism and she does also talk about self-help. And she makes this sort of really interesting argument talking about how self-help is sort of basically creates kind of a vicious cycle, right? Because it makes you feel like you always could be better and it makes and in doing that it always makes you feel like you are less than and so you have to constantly be then pursuing more and more self-help to get better because you're never good enough etc cetera, etc cetera, right it goes on and on and she articulates it's much more eloquently and there's many 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 other things in that book that are kind of about how living in this world of infinite choice creates a lot of anxiety for us so i would just recommend that book to listeners but the second one is so again this is someone else alex pang who i interviewed for hurry slowly and he wrote this book called rest which is i think the subtitle is why you get more done when you work less and just to shift your mindset about doing nothing so he was telling me that basically when you are doing nothing when your mind is wandering or seemingly at rest it's only about five to ten percent less active than when you're doing calculus problems or listening to a podcast or trying to crunch numbers. But what happens is that this whole second network gets activated and it's called the default mode network. And what happens when the default mode network gets activated is that different parts of your brain kind of get connected. These parts of your brains that are not connected when you're sort of actively, effortfully, consciously thinking about something. What also happens is that the part of your brain that really is your critical faculty calms down. So the part of you that's like, that's a stupid idea and then tells you to not pursue it. That kind of calms down. And then also your mind is synthesizing and making sense of memories and really making meaning, like basically engaging in sense making. And that's, you know, of course, also when your brain takes up these maybe challenging creative problems that you've been working on when you were exhibiting conscious effort, right? And so that's why when you're on a run or you're in the shower, you have these kind of aha moments. It's because that default mode network is actually doing tons and tons and tons of things. It's just doing them without your conscious effort. And so actually when you don't let your mind wander, when you don't have that downtime, you're actually shutting down that faculty that offers one of the sort of most fertile areas for your creativity. Do you schedule rest? I don't schedule rest, but I live a block from Prospect Park in Brooklyn and I go for lots of long walks in the park. With or without podcasts? Definitely without podcasts. Oh, wow. Yeah. I try not to, I mean, certainly, you know, you cannot have mind wandering or anything like that if you're listening to a podcast or music. Also, I interviewed this woman, Florence Williams, who wrote this book, The Nature Fix, recently. It's all about the benefits of, of being in nature for your creativity, your well-being, your mood, etc. And she was talking about this one study they did with people walking in a park, walking out in nature. And if they were on the phone or listening to something, they kind of tested them on recognition. Like, did they, they recognize things they had seen when they were walking around the park? And people who were listening to something did as poorly on the recognition tests as people who had, like, literally not even gone on the walk. So that just kind of indicates, right, how tuned out you are, how unpresent you are in that experience so you kind of don't get the nature in fact has lots of relaxing benefits but you don't get any of those benefits if you're you know doing something else at the time got it i'm wondering about your self-control are you able to take those walks do you actually bring your phone with you 
Yeah, usually I don't. If you don't want to use it, why bring it yeah. with you at all? <laughs> wow. That, that reminds me of, uh, I think I read somewhere where there's a study if you are operating things on low sleep, it's, it's similar to, to operating them drunk. Yes, absolutely. I also interviewed a sleep ex- expert. It just goes on and on and on. <laughs> Tell our listeners, it's almost like you've doubled our reading list <laughs> so far. I'm particularly intrigued about the one that challenges capitalism in the sense, because I do think that it all kind of percolates into something bigger and there's like the patriarchy in there and a lot of fucked up stuff. But tell us more about what's exciting in your world these days. Well, I mean, I, you know, already referenced it numerous times, but honestly, like just last week, so just last week I launched this podcast, which is called Hurry Slowly, which is essentially about how you can be more productive and creative and resilient just by, you know, the simple act of slowing down a little bit. And, you know, as I've kind of already, people probably already have an idea from listening to this interview, you know, I'm interviewing like a very broad range of people could be talking about attention, could be talking the importance of rest, could be talking about risk-taking, decision-making, the benefits of spending more time in nature. So it's a pretty wide lens, but, you know, we kind of talked at the beginning, I'm just thinking about sort of slowness and speed. And for me, that is the huge challenge of, this particular moment in which we're living, you know, I think we're operating in this modality and we're sort of overwhelmed and overstimulated and overscheduled. And so we're all kind of, you know, we have burnt out or we're on the verge of burnout and we can't continue to work at the pace that we're working at. So for me, it's all that the, the podcast hurry slowly is all about this kind of investigation of how we can figure out how to navigate work and life at a more sustainable pace. Cool. And I will, I'd be remiss to not plug your book, Unsubscribe, which is great. I've written about it and your email newsletter, which will all be in the show notes. Also one of my longtime favorites. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Jocelyn, and excited to slow down. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.